0: So our scripture reading today is from Revelation 1, 17 through 20. This is on page 1028 in your pew Bible. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, please just take that one home as a gift from us. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take to—excuse me—to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Holly. Well, good morning to each one of you, and uh, we're so glad to see you here, and whether this is... Uh, your very first time with us at Christ Community. We're so glad that you're here, whether you're uh, visiting this morning because you're going to stick around for child dedication later on and you're with family. Thanks for being here to celebrate that uh, moment. And We are praying that the rain continues to be light or goes away so we can do that later on. Uh, Or if this is your first time, you're part of Christ Community, but this is your first time being back in the building. Uh, We're just so glad to see you and to have you back with us in this space in person and uh, there are lots of folks from Christ Community across all of our campuses who are gathering online this morning as well, and uh, we're just grateful that by the power of the Holy Spirit we remain one body, not only here in Kansas City, but with our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, across the country and across the world, and just uh, grateful for the Spirit uniting us and uh, joining us in that way. So we've been in uh, a new series. We launched it last week. Uh, called Everything Sad, Untrue. And we're studying the book of Revelation together. And that line, Everything Sad, Untrue, comes from the final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. And in that story, uh, one of the characters, Sam, is, he survived this great battle. Uh, he's been unconscious. He wakes up and, and he realizes that, that they've won, that their side has won. And the king has been uh, inaugurated and he's on the throne. And, and he says to the, one of the other characters, Gandalf, he says, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Does this mean that everything sad is going to come untrue? And the big picture promise of the book of Revelation is that, yes, one day in Jesus, through the victory of the slain lamb, everything sad will come untrue. The promise of Revelation is that the king and his people will overcome, that they will endure, they will win, and that everything sad will come untrue. So that's what we're going to look at uh, in this series. And uh, we actually planned this series a year and a half ago. So we, this was, you know, even though it kind of feels like the end of the world right now, um, we didn't just say, let's preach on Revelation. Uh, God was at work long before in, in matching this up. So as we begin to look at this uh, text together, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And I do thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you that you have united us, whether here in person, uh, across our city, um, across the world. We thank you that you, Jesus, are our king. And we see you more clearly and be energized and refreshed in our calling as your body, the church, as we look at these texts this morning. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, I, I need to make a confession as we start this series that prior to this year, I had never finished reading the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So many of you know, I'm a, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. I loved the Lord of the Rings films, and I had tried so many times to read the Lord of the Rings books. I had friends who loved them. Uh, I, again, I loved the movies. I loved the story. But I'd always get through the Fellowship of the Ring. I even, At one point, i made it all the way through Two Towers and started Return of the King, but something would always come up. I would struggle to get through it. But I, I can say to you today that I have finally finished the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and is amazing. And really, what the key for me finishing was, I discovered the audiobook versions. Um, that you know, a good narrator is great, but this is a fantastic narrator who just brings to life the story of the Lord of the Rings. And so, once I started listening to the audiobooks, I just I couldn't stop. And uh, it has been incredible. So now that I've finally finished, can I just you know nerd out for just one one second? on Lord of the Rings with you for a moment, and th- that is this. There's a great scene in the first book, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, where Galadriel, the queen of the elves, gives Frodo, he's kind of the hero of the story, this, this file, and she explains and what it is, and even that's way too nerdy for me to go into, but it's, it's this, this bottle of light, and her last line to him in that moment is so powerful. It's just echoed in my mind. She says this. She says, It will shine brighter, when night is about you, may it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. Now, again, at the risk of this being overplayed or or overly dramatic, I think we can agree that 2020 has been kind of a dark season, right? I, and, and, you know, we, I'm not going to go through the whole laundry list of stuff that happened, but I mean, at minimum, like for so many of you, your kids are back going to school on an iPad in, in your office or in your living room again, right? But we are not alone in having experienced dark and difficult times as Christians. I mean, Christians throughout history uh, have endured, uh, you know, systemic pre- persecution by the state. They've um, endured as well as people across the globe pandemics and plagues. And so what's encouraging to me as I reflect on that history is that Jesus is ultimately, he's not worried, meaning he's not wringing his hands. He's not anxious about his people, the church, experiencing difficulty. He's not worried about the darkness. Why? Because Jesus says that we as the church are a lampstand. That's that image that you get in the passage that Holly read for us. Jesus says we are lampstands shining in a dark world. And that's the image of Revelation of the church that describes the church in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus actually writes letters to seven churches in the ancient world at that time. And he uses this language of lampstands to describe what the churches are. And light and darkness, they're a major theme in the writing of Tolkien. They're also a major theme in the Bible. It's where Tolkien got this from and there's no shortage of darkness these days but there's a light that shines brighter there's the darkness of injustice abuse contempt idolatry immorality all manner of evil in our world and yet we know that everything sad is going to come untrue but things still look pretty sad now And so in a moment where there is lots of sadness, lots of darkness, what is our lampstand, what is our light as a church supposed to look like in this moment? Well, we actually did a whole teaching series on these seven letters to the seven churches last fall. So if you want to go really deep into these seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, you can go back to our website, click on on resources, find our sermon page, and you can go back and there's an entire message on each one of these seven letters. But this morning we're going to just sort of sum up in one message kind of the major themes, this theme of light and darkness that unfold in these letters. So here's the bottom line for this morning, that the darkness is great, but the light is greater still. The darkness is great, but the light is greater still. And we're going to see three observations this morning about being light in a dark world. And the first one is this, and it's pretty basic, but but let's not miss this. As the church, we are called to shine in a dark world. As the local church, as God designed it, the hope of the world, we are designed and called to shine in a dark world. We are called to be light in the midst of the darkness. Now, there's a reason that Jesus uses the image of lampstand as a metaphor, an image to describe what the church is and what we are to be. And again, these themes of light and darkness, they go all the way back to the very beginning of your Bible, and it's a theme that gets traced all the way through to the very end, right? Where you turn to Genesis chapter 1, page 1 of your Bible, and darkness is over the surface of the deep, and then God says, what? there be light. Darkness and light are in the first sentences of the Bible. And then in Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, verse 5 says this, and night, darkness, night will be no more and there will be no need of light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and will reign forever and ever So from the first page of your Bible to the last page of your Bible, light and darkness are key themes. And then you find in sort of the the heartbeat of the story that everything is working toward and looking back on the coming of Jesus in person to die on a cross and rise again and ascend back to the Father. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. He says, let your light shine before others so that they will see your good work See your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Uh, The Apostle Paul, reflecting on who is the community of the church to be, he writes to a church in the community of Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. But most important for our passage this morning, is actually a little book in, in the Old Testament called Zechariah, And again, this as a tip for reading Revelation. All of those kind of bizarre and strange images that you see in the book of Revelation, they are rooted back, first and foremost, in imagery from the Old Testament, in particular the Old Testament prophets. And so if you really want to understand the book of Revelation well, you've got to understand the Old Testament prophets well. Now, there's this book of Zechariah. I mean, I'm a pastor. I don't read Zechariah a whole lot. It might be a while since you all have read Zechariah, if you ever have. Um, But this is where, uh, just another, I'm trying to go through the series, give some tips. Another tip is if you have a Bible, not all Bibles do this, but some Bibles, like in this one that I have here, there's uh, cross-references. There's little number, this is way too small for you to see, but there's a little column down the middle that has other little verses, they're like little footnotes, and that's called a cross-reference Bible. And a cross-reference Bible is just going to link you, it's kind of like hyperlinks on a web page, on a Wikipedia page. Those little uh, cross-references will take you to other parts in the Bible that have similar themes or maybe a quote. And so if you're reading Revelation, I'd encourage you to get a Bible, a study Bible, some kind of a Bible that has, or online Bibles have these as well, cross-references, hyperlinks to other parts in the Scripture. And if you were reading this part of your Bible, you're going to get a cross-reference, a hyperlink to Zachariah chapter 4. So let me just read you that hyperlink. It says this, And the angel who was speaking to me then returned and roused me as one waking out of sleep, and he asked me, What do you see? And I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top, and the lampstand also has seven lamps on top with seven spouts for each lamp. Do you see the, the continuity of imagery? This is Zechariah that shapes Revelation. The meaning and the image of the lampstand is slightly different in Zechariah and Revelation, but scholars point out that, nevertheless, the basic thrust is the same. The churches are depicted as lights shining for God in the midst of a hostile world. Now, light does a lot of different things in the Bible, and it's kind of its metaphor. It's used for a lot of different ways. It reveals, it sets free. But the key idea is bearing witness in Revelation The idea of telling the truth about who Jesus is and and what he's done for us and what he's doing in us. And we shine in the dark by reflecting the light of Jesus. And again, you don't have to be a a brilliant Bible scholar. You don't have to be um, some kind of fancy, philosophically sophisticated apologist to be a witness for Jesus. Because at the end of the day, being a witness simply involves telling what happened to you. Pastor Taylor talked about that last week. What has been your experience with Jesus? How has he been at work in your life? Again, you don't have to have the answer to every theological gotcha question to be able to just say, "You know, I don't know if I can answer that question for you right now, but here's what Jesus has done for me. You just have to remain faithful to Jesus and be willing to tell others with your words and your good work what Jesus has done for you. So wherever we go, together or individually, we should be a community that brings light and warmth and encouragement and gentleness and winsome truth-telling. Wherever we go, we ought to be people that when we walk into a room, we, we metaphorically turn on the light. That room is more filled with warmth and love and compassion and kindness and truth-telling and joy because we are there. Jesus said in John, the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world, and he calls us the church's body we are to be the light in our world which leads us to our next observation here though and that which that's that when our our light dims when we compromise our light dims when we compromise. Because if you look at where the churches as a whole are struggling, where Jesus actually in, in chapter two, verse five, threatens to remove the light of one of the churches. Because if you read through these seven letters, there's lots of places where Jesus is encouraging them saying, You're doing this really well, but also here's some things I have against you, here's where you need to grow, where you need to improve. And if you look at where these churches are struggling, it's like he's saying your your light is going down and you are starting to look more like the darkness. And where light, and I think there's, there's two ways that we can be tempted to compromise. And the first one is this, where, where light is threatening, we can be tempted to give up. Because oftentimes when you bring light into a dark space, the, the, the darkness does not like the light. And so that's where you get this element. You see these churches, some of them are being persecuted. And in those moments, that's a, a time when it's easy to want to give up. And a big issue in the cultural context of these letters was eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. Again, that's not something you probably deal with on a regular basis in your cultural context. Christians around the world and other cultural contexts actually do still deal with that, but that's not for us. But it's not like we don't have places where we are forced or feel pressure to compromise. Because in the ancient world, It's not that different from today. Idolatry, politics, economic life, those were all intertwined in the ancient world. So you might go to a business meeting in the first century and it might open with a sacrifice to one of the gods of your city or of your industry. And being light there meant showing another way to live that that there's only one true God and that was incredibly threatening in the Roman world. It could mean the loss of your job, the loss of business opportunities, the loss of of being able to provide for your family. And again, our situation in the 21st century here in Kansas City is is different but we still face pressures, difficult beliefs that we hold, doctrines around human sexuality, the Bible's trustworthiness, etc. that can tempt us to compromise. But whenever we do, we inevitably stop shining as brightly as we ought. Also, where there's darkness, it's tempting to give in. And Jesus warns a number of people in churches in these letters about the dangers of giving in to false teaching. Um, and compromise in that way can be either large or small, but no matter what the compromise, it begins to cloud our light. It makes us less effective, it robs us of joy. And recently, we were on a vacation back at the end of August, our family was, and we went to Rocky Mountain National Park, and it was incredibly dry there, and actually, there were two wildfires burning the region. Even today, we still have smoke coming from wildfires across the country here in Kansas City, and it just blanketed everything. At our campsite, it was clear that it had not rained in a long time, and instantly, when we got to our campsite and set up everything, we actually even had ash come down a little bit on, on one night, but there just dust was everywhere. And the moment the kids would step out of the tent in the morning, it was like two minutes later. They were just covered in, in dirt and dust. It was just so dry. And over a period of days, I noticed I was having more and more trouble backing our van into the campsite through using the backup camera. I was like, why can I not see? Like, it just, is it just the sun? Or what was going on? At first, I thought maybe it was something wrong with the screen on the, on the dashboard in the car. And then it hit me. The lens was covered in dust. And until I could clean off the lens on the back of the car, like I wasn't able to see clearly to back up. In a dusty life of compromise, it keeps the light of Jesus from shining clearly in our lives as the church. When our lives are dusty with compromise, it can lead to crashes for us and for others. And as that dust of compromise slowly accumulates, we shine less and less bright. But again, it doesn't happen all at once. It accumulates slowly. And that was the thing even with the backing up. It's like each day I, it was got a little bit worse, but I didn't really notice it. And there's lots of different things that can cause us to compromise in these moments, especially in the, the season of, of such political um, tension and vitriol and pressures towards natural, nationalism, all these kinds of things. There are compromises, but... Those are ones I think we're aware of, we're hyper aware of of the political conversation. And and so maybe we're a little less inclined to make those things idols or compromise there. I think where we're more tempted is in things that are a lot more subtle, things like individualism and consumerism. And they're dangerous because they don't feel like compromise. In fact, they're so common, so pervasive in the water, we don't even necessarily sense that we're, we're compromising with them at all. But they slowly turn us away from God. And I think one person who who puts a, the, their finger just on the pulse of how that works so well is a woman named Ashley Hale. She wrote a great book called Finding Holy in the Suburbs, uh, Living Faithfully in the Land of Too Much. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Really challenging, really thoughtful. Highly encourage you to read it. And I just want to read you a section where I think she just she just identifies how consumerism in particular can just sneak into our lives. Let me just read you a little section uh, from Ashley's book here. She writes this. She says, A shopping trip to Target held out the adrenaline rush of a good deal, mingling of caffeine with dopamine hit when we buy something, the pleasure of comfort, the hope of transformation, at least regarding new footwear, If my children decided my target uh, deal-finding mission was not their jam for the day, I could usually bribe them with snacks, goodies from the dollar bin, or an impromptu lunch at the adjoining pizza hut. At Target, I could morph into fun mom. Sure, have your goldfish and Pokemon cards, and let's grab a new swim goggles and new markers, as long as mom can look at the boho cheek rugs, gold office supplies, and comb through the sales racks. She says, I was multitasking and being productive, doing errands, taking a break, buying a coffee, indulging my children a little. We all need a little retail therapy, right? And she says, those of us who love or who are people of faith tend to worship our place alongside God. Surely we love Jesus, but in the suburbs, we tend to like our slice of the American dream too. We want our Bible studies alongside our target splurges. And it's not wrong, she writes, to appreciate beauty, to buy things, or to want our homes to be lovely. Shopping itself isn't bad, but our repeated habits help form our loves. When I buy dark chocolate or a new throw pillows, I am feeling, when I'm feeling lonely or sad or angry, I only mask my soul's hunger with a suburban fast food fix. And then she concludes with this, since the Garden of Eden, just like the prodigal son, we leave home to seek it elsewhere, even in new home-to-car or packed schedules. When I go to Target to solve my locational and existential homelessness, it will never work because Target can never satiate my hungers. And she's right. I mean, in her example is, is Target, but I mean, you could fill in anything there, right? You could, you could put Bass Pro, you could put Amazon, REI, any, any shopping experience. And it doesn't matter if it's, if it's throw pillows or new camping gear. If we are using stuff to fill our emptiness, we are putting more distance between God and ourselves and our light starts to dim. Which brings us to our third observation, and that is that our light shines brightest in self-sacrifice. Our light shines brightest in self-sacrifice. In every case, Jesus' ultimate call to faithfulness in the book of Revelation is a willingness to die And Jesus writes to the church of Smyrna, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, as hard as it may be to hear, it is clear that for Jesus, our light shines brightest when we are willing to give up our preferences, our comforts, and in some cases, even our very lives for him and others. Recently, someone in our congregation shared with me a newsletter from an organization that tells the stories of persecuted Christians around the world that describe the, the death of a young man at the hands of Islamist extremists because of his refusal to die, Jesus, and declare Allah as God alone. That was a powerful story. And our, our English word, martyr, comes from the Greek word martiretto, which means to bear witness, to be a witness. And nothing made darkness tremble, like the early martyrs, because they showed a watching world they believed that death is not the end, and that there is nothing that there is something worse than death, and it revealed a truth, the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection as well as his coming judgment, like nothing else. And this is true in persecution and in famine. In fact, in the mid-third century, a terrible plague devastated the Roman Empire. Many of you probably know this story, but St. Cyprian, a Christian leader at the time, estimated that 5,000 people of the day died in Rome alone during this plague. And people throughout the, the, that time, they thought the world was ending. And history tells us that the Roman Emperor at the time blamed Christians for the misfortune. But his his theory that Christians were behind this uh, was undermined by two facts. One, that that Christians were dying and suffering just as much as anyone else. And, And two, that they were the ones who stayed to help when everyone else fled Rome to get away from the plague. Christians stayed behind and cared not only for other Christians, but for everyone else who was sick, who was left there. Now, we may not be called to sacrifice our physical bodies to literal death, but for every one of us, Our light does shine brightest in self-sacrifice when we give up our comforts and our preferences, our resources, our time for others. And for us in this moment, in this season, a season of political division, racial inequity, COVID-19, loving those who feel like they are not on our side, giving up our preferences for those who we are often frustrated with is the way, one of the clearest ways to show the light and love of Jesus to speak to them with kindness, to ask genuine questions, to pray for them, to surprise them with gifts or acts of service. And I encourage you to do that this week. Think of people who are frustrated into you, whether it's a neighbor, a family member, a coworker, a fellow classmate, and think of how can I serve them? How can I give up some preference, some comfort that I would have so that I can make their life easier? I can bring them joy. Because remember, the bottom line is that darkness is great, but the light is greater still. So how can we love those who are not on our side? Think of a person, again, a neighbor, a boss, coworker, a parent, a child, a brother, a sister, and think of a way that you can self-sacrificially love them. Send them a text just saying something that you're grateful for about them. Bring them a gift, serve them in some way. And this matters because people meet Jesus through us. And so even a simple text, a simple act of service can be a way of shining light. Jesus has promised both sober judgment as well as extraordinary reward. And he's called us to shine as light in the darkness. Well, we conclude with this in Revelation chapter two, Jesus is described as the first and the last. The one who came to life who died and then came to life. And the darkest moment in history was the moment that Jesus died on the cross. In fact, the gospel writers tell us that darkness came over the earth as he died, literal darkness, that the sky grew dark. But he faced that ultimate darkness of death and evil so that we might experience the brightness of Easter morning because he is not just the one who died, he is the one who died and rose again and who is seated at the right hand of the Father who is interceding for us now, Before the very throne of God, darkness could not snuff him out. And if you place your faith and hope and trust in him, as you follow him in the way of self-sacrifice and love, you too will overcome the darkness, even the darkness of death itself. Friends, the darkness is great, but the light is greater still. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us this, this picture of light, um, this, the beauty of, of light that you have given um, in, the, in the scriptures from page one all the way to the last page of our Bible. And I pray that as your church, where you send us each and every day, that you would scatter us to be light across our city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.